welcome to the Race to the White House, where we covered everything you needed to know about the 2016 US election. It's now 2017, and we are back for one last time to talk Trump. Welcome to the Trump era. At noon US time on January 20, Donald Trump took the oath of office and became the 45th president of the United States. He's now been the leader of the free world for a little over 80 hours. And whether you love him or loathe him, the Republican has already set a range of records as soon as he entered the Oval Office. From his age to his bank balance, the fact he has what is believed to be the wealthiest administration in modern American history, and he'll even be the first US president in over a century not to have an animal pal in the White House. In today's episode, we'll be covering the new president's inaugural speech, what we can expect from a Trump administration, and how we expect global politics to play out over the course of the next four years. So joining me in the studio now to guide us through it all, as usual, Tom Switzer. Hi, Tom. G'day, Emma. Great to be here. Uh, Tom is a senior fellow at the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney, where he's taught undergraduate courses in US-Australian relations and American history and politics. And also joining me is Brendan O'Connor. G'day, Brendan. Good to be here with you both. Uh, Brendan is an associate professor at the United States Study Centre, where he has taught courses on American domestic politics and foreign affairs and is an expert in anti-Americanism, neoconservatism and presidential politics. Uh, So to start us off, the words of Trump's inaugural address have filtered around the world. Trump was inaugurated at 3am on the 21st of January, our time. Many have described the speech as dark, divisive and contradictory, and the speech emphasised protectionism, cooperation and putting America first. Uh, So I wanted to ask um, Brendan and Tom, did either of you stay up to watch the inauguration and what are your takeaway thoughts? Well, I'll I'll jump in there. I I thought the speech actually put a lot of pressure on Trump. I think that's the big takeaway that I got from it. He said the time for talk is over. The time for action is now. And there were big promises about making America great by making its economy stronger, its military stronger, bringing back manufacturing jobs to the United States, uh, ending bad trade deals and... uh, getting uh, America on the right side of the trade balances with countries like China and Mexico. That will be incredibly hard to achieve. His approach to, I think, trying to bring back manufacturing to the United States by slapping tariffs on BMW he threatened in one interview to do recently is, I think, unlikely to work. Things like cars are made partly in America, partly in China and Taiwan, so are our phones, so are our computers. So I think the Trump view of how economics work uh, sounds good in theory, maybe to some unemployed Americans or people who have done it tough in the Rust Belt. But in reality, it, it's not the world we live in. We live in a globalized economy. And if you try to cut yourself off and just look after your own country, that's likely to backfire. So I thought it put an enormous expectation on Trump's shoulders where if you look at Obama's inaugural in 2009, he tried to dampen down expectations and say, hang on, a president can only do so much. Yeah, I think there's no question that he has raised expectations. And I understand uh, that a lot of people in the media, in the political world, are outraged by the tenor of his remarks. But in some respects, we shouldn't be too surprised because his address merely reflects everything he said during the campaign. And some might argue, isn't it refreshing having a president talking the way he campaigned? He hasn't backpedaled from all his campaign promises, or not all of them at least. Certainly the broad thrust of the campaign is still in existence. The other point I'd make is this speech struck me as a nationalist, 
populist repudiation of everything that Washington has stood for in recent generations. It was a backlash against globalization. It's a backlash against porous borders. It was basically a message that the nation state still exists. And this is a message that is gaining widespread support across many parts of Europe. So I think there's a danger in thinking that Trump and this speech in particular is confined to just America. In many respects, he reflects a Western trend, especially in Europe. I agree. I mean, uh, it's not just an American thing. I mean, we see, you know, the rise of Le Pen is going to be a major figure in this year's uh, French presidential race. But the solutions offered, there is no evidence that these things can possibly work. And there's no real evidence that they reflect the world that we live in. The sense that you can sort of look after your own industries at the sort of costs of industries elsewhere and the Chinese won't retaliate or the Germans won't retaliate on a tariff on BMW is very unrealistic. They can know where to hit America hard on these things and say, look, you're really good at producing these iPhones that we're not as good at producing. Why don't we make them 35% more expensive and see if we can start producing something nearly as good uh, for a lot cheaper? So that's going to be the reality he faces. He doesn't live in a world where people can't retaliate against the United States on trade on some of the things that he might want to do. But Brennan's making all sorts of economic sense, and I agree fully with him that a repudiation of free markets and free trade is a bad thing. But remember, this is a view that's widely held on left and right. Bernie Sanders made this a big issue in the Democratic campaign for president. As we've discussed, it's happening all across Europe on left and right. And what happens, Brendan, if that rules-based international order that we've known since 1945 and especially since the collapse of the Soviet Empire, what happens if that collapses and other states start engaging in the same types of protectionist policies as Trump? Trump might well be a harbinger for international relations. Well, I think that would be a disaster. I mean, sometimes you only realise how good something is once it's gone. And there's been many faults to the sort of attempts to create norms since 1945 with the World Trade Organization and the IMF and the like and the UN. But they're a lot better than the alternative, which is a kind of race to the bottom or a mercantilist kind of look after yourself first approach. So I don't. You know, I don't look forward to living in that world. I mean, the norms-based system is many faults, but it is an, an, an ideal, at least, to argue yeah, for. Well, we're in broad agreement about this, but I would just stress that politics is not rational at the moment around the Western world. I'm Emma Lancaster, and you're listening to Race for the White House. This podcast is made by 2SER 107.3 with the support of the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney and The Conversation. Trump's rhetoric in his inauguration speech was really similar to his stump speech. I think it's quite ironic that um, it's not often you hear a billionaire (laughs) claiming to speak for the people as well. But did we actually hear anything new in the inauguration or was there anything there that you weren't expecting? I think it was very much as Tom was saying. You're saying yourself, Emma, a populist speech, uh, returning the power to the people from Washington, a nationalist speech. That term America first, when you hear that with any sense of history, that the American first is with the people 
who are on the side of Nazi Germany in the Second World War. You've got that's grating. You think surely you can come up with a better term than that? You know, the Make America Great or America uh, is going to be sort of number one again or whatever it might be. That rhetoric really is unfortunate. And the rhetoric of carnage. Clearly, there's a lot of Americans who are very anxious about their nation's future. It's not just Trump supporters, but two-thirds of the American people think their country is heading in the wrong direction. These trends precede the Obama presidency. But carnage is a big word to use to describe the plight of today's America. I mean, there is a lot to be optimistic about America. Uh, Demographic trends are working in America's favour. They still have the largest, the most productive economy in the world, or one of the most productive economies in the world. It has the largest military in the world. Uh, Fertility rates are moving in the right direction. Uh, It still is a trendsetter when it comes to uh, the new digital media and digital innovation. So I think that carnage was a bit of an overstatement. I think one of the big political challenges for a Trump's opponents is going to be, do you follow the Hillary Clinton approach by saying, look, we've got a lot better over the last eight years as a nation. We've come together and healed some racial wounds. Our economy has bounced back. It's, you know, it's not not perfect America, but as Tom's saying, there are a lot of things on the plus side. Or do you take that more combative approach that you saw from the Sanders campaign and say, okay, there is a lot of things that are really wrong with this country, the infrastructure, the job security, the income inequality. Mm. Um, It's not all rosy. You know, Trump Trump is drawing on something significant here, Mm. and you've got to face up to these problems, see them as major problems, but... There are going to be different solutions. Trump's got his solutions, pose some different solutions. And my sense is that people are maybe ready for these more dramatic sets of ideas, be it Trump's right-wing populism or maybe Sanders, you know, democratic socialism, social democracy. So that that may be the way that American politics heads in the future, which does seem more like Europe to me yes. than the kind of centrist politics that we got used to with Obama and Clinton and uh you know, in some ways where America's been on the centre-right for a long time. There's a much more sort of open field of ideas, some of them dangerous, but more, you know, more fertile debate than we've had for quite a long time. And following on from Brendan, just quickly, Emma, listeners might be interested in an article by Francis Fukuyama in Foreign Affairs magazine last winter, making the point that the rise and the success of Bernie Sanders on the left and Donald Trump on the right uh, shows that this is two to three decades of wage stagnation and rising income inequality catching up with American politics. Now, before we uh, move on from the inauguration, we need to talk about the crowds. Uh, There has been an ongoing debate about the number of people who attended Trump's inauguration. Uh, Trump claims over a million to a million and a half. And according to crowd scientists at Manchester Metropolitan University in Britain, uh, they studied photos and video. The, The crowd on and around Washington Mall for Trump's inauguration totaled about 160,000. And on the same basis, they estimate that Obama's 2009 inauguration drew some 1.8 million people. So Trump boosted the number and used hyperbole, so that's nothing that is new there. But then Trump sent his press secretary, Sean Spicer, to the White House uh, briefing room for the very first time to tell the press that this was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration period. And the same morning on Meet the Press, Trump's senior advisor, Kellyanne Conway was asked why Spicer had so clearly lied, uh, as anyone could tell by 
comparing the pictures side by side and Conway insisted that Trump's press secretary didn't lie. He gave alternative facts. So is this something we can expect to see continue in a Trump administration? And, and what does this mean for the role of the of the media in a well, Trump era? Yeah, let me just say from the outset, I think the Trump media team have badly mishandled this controversy from the outset. I think it, the Trump team would be better off, instead of having a, a war with the media, which they're never going to win, they'd be better off focusing on policy details on how they can make America great again. I mean, that's what the voters wanted when they supported Donald Trump. The other point I'd say is there's, no, there's nothing wrong. Uh, I mean, he, Trump doesn't need to be so defensive about this. I mean, because the reality is a lot of his core supporters were poor, uh, working class, rural voters. It costs an arm and a leg to, to travel to Washington, D.C. in the dead of winter and staying in a decent hotel for $1,000 a night because the demand is so high for decent accommodation. It's not surprising that a lot of his core supporters didn't show up to the inauguration, like, say, Metropolitan voters supported Barack Obama in 2009 and 2013. So I think that the lesson here for the Trump media team is don't be so defensive and just get on the front foot and talk about policy. Yeah, I mean, on both sides, the media has to focus on policy as well. I mean, Trump has already reversed funding to the United Nations, which supports birth control programs and sometimes used in abortion cases. You wouldn't know that, that, though, from the that, media coverage, that should would you? Be, that, yeah. That's a much bigger issue. Yeah. He's won the election. does speak to something important, the sense of getting out there and spreading false information about how many people are on the D.C. metro for the Trump inaugural as opposed to the Obama inaugural in 2009. That speaks to something that you can either describe in two ways – is either one hand it sounds like a kind of reality television boast where you just make things up and say things to pretend that you're the most popular and you're going to be the contestant that goes on to the next week of the show. Or this is the way dictators behave. Dictators just make up their own facts. They throw their opponents in jail or claim they're going to throw them in jail. Now, I'm at the moment, I'm, I'm more prepared to say, look, Trump's on the sort of reality television side of things. <laughs> you know, he, he makes up his own publicity. He, uh, he is his own publicist at certain times in his life, saying that, you know, Madonna wanted to date him and the like. But there is this... Did creep- he say that, did he? Yeah. I mean, he was uh, <laughs> pretended to... He rung up uh, radio stations and whatnot and said he was... This guy called John Barron, and uh, you know he was speaking up Trump's uh, personal life and his business career, and it was uh, John Barron was uh, Donald Trump at the same time, <laughs> which is one of those sort of great little bits of trivia. But on the more serious side, on the on the kind of dictator argument, you've got to have a sense that his ideas about kind of freedom of the press, about the kind of uh, you know validity of how you might fact check things, is rather unusual and worrying. And, uh, you know, rightly, people from the beginning are saying, hang on a minute, you can't just uh, you can't just make up numbers to suit yourself. The Race for the White House, a U.S. election podcast for the non-American. Now, let's turn to Trump and trade. Trump has declared categorically that it is all about putting America's interests first. Um, And today marks Trump's first full day in office. And he has signed an executive order pulling America out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal. And he's fulfilled this promise with this decree, effectively ending America's participation in a sweeping free trade agreement. What does this mean for the TPP? Will it still go ahead? And are we going to see more of this? TPP might still go ahead, but it won't have the 
the largest economy in the world, the United States. So uh, in a way, it's not as significant as it would have been if Washington had signed up to this. I think this is a great shame because it shows that, among other things, the United States is less likely to be the principal rule setter in the Asia-Pacific. A rule setter on climate regulations, labor regulations, cybersecurity, and the like. And China would be very happy with this. I mean, this is a great irony here. Donald Trump has made it clear that he wants to get tough with China. China is not part of the TPP. China is now happy that it has an opportunity to fill the vacuum with its own trade initiatives in the region. I think that's a really good point from Tom, that the TPP was on one level a free trade agreement, but it was a whole set of regulations. One of the reasons that Obama was so keen on it was that it could establish some labor standards, sweatshop you know, standards for the production of our footwear, clothing, all sorts of things, environmental standards. So it was both about free trade and regulation, and America was keen to set sort of uh, reasonable standards, what would help to some degree create fair trade as well as free trade. On this issue of whether China will step in to the void or whether there'll be a TPP without the United States, that's fascinating from an alliance point of view because that could drive Australia, an ally of the United States, into a much more pro sort of Asia kind of position and see its interest really in agreements that are multilateral across the region or even agreements that include China and free trade And that in some ways takes it further away from the American alliance. That decision that Australia never wants to make and sensibly hasn't made of, you know, whether it be moving towards China or the United States, of course you want both. Uh, But this provides a little bit of an opening, I would have thought, for the Chinese and a little bit of a, a potential rift from the Americans to say the way the Americans want to do business and economics is not in this is not suitable to Australia, and that's that's transparently obvious at the moment. Yeah, can I just say that the TPP was one of the keynote legislative issues for the president, President Obama, from 2011 to 2016. This was his the centerpiece of the so-called pivot to Asia, and I think a lot of the fault lies with President Obama for not selling the TPP when he had a good chance with the Republicans controlling the Senate and the House, because the Republicans broadly in Congress supported the TPP. Where President Obama copped resistance was primarily on his own side of politics, on the left side of the Democrat Party in both the Senate and the House. And, of course, Bernie Sanders made it a big issue when he ran for the nomination for the Democratic Party. So, in a weird way, this is Trump forming an alliance with the left of the Democrats and the business wing of the Republican Party has left isolated and that means the TPP is now dead. Yeah, I mean, it's become a scapegoat issue, the TPP, on the campaign trail last year. It was one of these things that was to suggest that these were kind of global economic elites who are going to bleed uh, the populaces of the United States and every country that this agreement came into. It it was a classic example of kind of economic illiteracy, I think, was a sort of key thing that there was very little discussion of, well, what mm. is in mm. this agreement? What is it about? And why is Obama, who we often think of as a progressive, why is he so for it? Um, what does he see as the benefits from it? So I think you're right. I, I agree in general that... People like Obama who see global trade as a good thing, who see global international norm setting as a good thing, haven't always been good at selling the benefits of these things because these are disruptive activities. And if things are disruptive, you've got to explain them to your voters over and over again. And he hardly mentioned the TPP in his State of the Union addresses. 
You gave it one sentence, if that, in all and, of your State of the Union and, the, and I suppose this has been a long-standing criticism of economic globalization, of somewhat called neoliberal sort of approaches mm-hmm. to trade, that people say, look, here are the economic facts. This is what our specialists tell us is they're really the only alternative we've got. We've got to go with it. But that has to be sold. All sort of major changes and, and major policies have to be sold. And it's a complex story of, you know, You've got less job security, but you've got cheaper televisions and more shirts and clothes, and you know it's there's the and the benefits are diffuse, but the pain is often you know directed at particular industries and and parts of you know the United States as we saw in the election in the Rust Belt. Well, the Trump advisor actually told the World Economic Forum in Davos that Trump believes the United States can fight and win an economic war with China. Uh, the United States may be hurt by the aftermath, but China will be hurt more, they argued. So is it likely that we'll see an economic war with China under Trump? And wouldn't this be a catastrophe for both countries? Well, it would be, but we have to remember that it's easier said than done to slap a 45% tariff on Chinese goods and services. The president uh, is likely to face resistance from his own party on that issue. And But just say for argument's sake, he did impose a 45% tariff on Chinese goods and services. Then, among other things, leaving aside the devastating economic impact of a trade war, it would mean that prices for textiles and clothing for... Trump supporters, you know, a lot of the battlers, the working class folks who supported him, they'd have to pay higher prices when they go to Walmart. And these are the folks he's ostensibly trying to help. So in many respects, getting back to one of Brennan's points, putting higher tariffs on Chinese goods and services will actually hurt the very people who supported Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, it would be devastating for the international economy. I mean, it could put the American economy into recession, as Tom's saying. Walmart's business model is just very small margins on mass products. And if those margins go up, you know, they're pricing themselves out of the market uh, and their their business model, they're the biggest employer in the United States, biggest employer in the world, Walmart, they really would struggle with a, any form of trade war. So it doesn't, doesn't make any economic sense. It sounds good as a campaign slogan. And the thing that obsesses Donald Trump almost more than anything else in foreign affairs is that China almost sells four times as many things to the United States than the United States sells to China. So there's a massive trade deficit, mm-hmm. a massive trade imbalance. And you might think, well, fair enough, you know, wants to kind of even that up. That is a, a source of uh, a lot of revenue going to the Chinese. But a lot of that is produced partly by American companies. Uh, and a lot of it's been this long-standing American plan to say, look, we want to make, turn the Chinese into good capitalists. It worked maybe a little better than the Americans in the 70s when they started out on this Project Hope. And that one day, because of their billion-plus population that will become middle class, we'll be able to sell them a lot of things. That's the biggest market in town. So it's in some ways losing your nerve. Just as about the Chinese are just about become wealthier and wealthier as a middle-class society, it's saying, ah... Oh, this didn't work out too well for our country. Um, we can't compete with the Chinese, which, you know, if you've followed uh, sort of American history since 1945 or for a long time, the idea that you're suddenly going to say, well, America can't really keep up with the Chinese, it gives up on a certain kind of exceptionalism, which Americans always tend to be sort of driven by. To say, you know, in any competition, we can economic, sort of moral, um, foreign policy, trade, we, we can eventually outdo the others. Brendan, Putin must be wondering how to take advantage of the Trump window to achieve something that can't be undone by his successes. What are we likely to see from Moscow? 
Well, there was some celebration at uh, Trump's victory and his inaugural address in Moscow. They do see this, I think, as a, as a moment of opportunity. I think there's a fair bit of disagreement between Tom and myself on this issue that I'd see the reduction of nuclear tensions between the two countries has always got to be a first-order issue. You've got to take that seriously. Russia has an enormous arsenal of weapons, and you don't unnecessarily aggravate them and the idea that you'd both have non-fly sort of zones in Syria that might sort of lead to some conflict. And Hillary Clinton, I think, became too close to that view. But you, I think you have to see Russia for what it is. It's a declining power. It's a power that in some ways has been pretty desperate in the time since the end of the Cold War. And so you have to manage that. And I don't think the way that Trump has kind of almost massaged Putin's ego and talked of some kind of grand deal for the Middle East is the way to treat a power that in economic terms has a smaller economy than Australia. Uh, It's not... Uh, a country that's heading in the high tech direction. It hasn't. It's got a had a very educated population that it's been. Uh, I think not sort of uh, taken advantage of in the way that it could have seen itself to build on a model of say somewhere like uh, Germany rather than becoming a sort of uh, you know more like one of the oil states of West Africa in some of its kind of uh, corruption and its its political system. So I think the this just the the sense that. What are you going to get out of uh, a country that hasn't been particularly trustworthy in its relations? How is Trump going to strike a deal with Putin that would really stick, and particularly in the Middle East, where the Russians and their relationship with the Syrians has undoubtedly led to a large number of civilian casualties? I mean, the report I was reading this morning in the sort of last year, possibly 3,600 civilians is a number of agencies have claimed that the Russians themselves have shot in Syria by trying to sort of uh, help get rid of ISIS there. So I think there's just so many thorny issues here that a much more uh, calibrated, cautious relationship with Russia is sensible rather than Trump's... Uh, there is, I think there is a little bit of he-man and sort of uh, admiration for Putin, which... Um, you know, isn't, I, I don't think it's going to go anywhere useful. Oh, I agree with Brendan that uh, Russia is a declining power. Certainly demographic and economic trends are moving against Russia. But I think the way you handle it is a bit like how you would handle a cornered, wounded animal. And remember, this cornered, wounded animal uh, that's been damaged, its credibility and prestige has been badly damaged since the collapse of the Soviet Union 25 years ago, it still has a vast arsenal of nuclear weapons. And I just question, and this is Trump's position, what is the logic of committing NATO military exercises right along Russia's doorstep from the Baltics to the Black Sea? This upsets the sensibilities of not just Putin and the Russian generals, but the broad cross-section of the Russian people who feel that the Americans and the Western Europeans are exploiting their so-called victory in the Cold War and further marginalising them. I think the way you deal with this power is by trying to integrate it into the community rather than pushing it further into the corner where it could lash out in unpredictable ways. I think that's true, but you've got to have a kind of balance on some of those states like Estonia that want to be out of the the former Soviet Union. They wanted to be independent if there's a sort of a vast majority of those populations who prefers to be an independent state. You've got to deal with that. Why, why, not... why are those states' vital interests to the United States? 
you they don't have i don't think you want to be having engaging in provocative military activities but saying that nato but, is possibly obsolete i mean the chill that that must send well, for on. those states is is i think is not the balance but position. you're talking about american national security this is what Trump's argument. Why is Lat- Latvia uh, a vital American interest of the United States? Well, it's been part of the sort of Western, I suppose, alliance that NATO has built up. So it's moved within that realm through its choice. I mean, there wasn't this wasn't something that was imposed upon them. They chose to be part of that alliance. And if you're part of a kind of a network of allies, as NATO is, there's been, the, as you know, the sort of, uh, you know, the charter of NATO is an attack on one nation is an attack on all nations within NATO. So they've, they've been part of an alliance where there are some security guarantees. But, but this is what the realist counter-argument would be, is why should Washington and Brussels make threats and commitments to Russia and the Baltics when they're not going to honour, that they're unable and unwilling to honour them. I mean, is the United States, a war-weary America, really going to spend blood and treasure in a part of the world where no US army has ever fought? Crikey, even Eisenhower at the height of the Hungarian crisis did not intervene in, in Hungary. Uh, mm. This is a part of the world where clearly Russia has a huge military superiority. What's in it for America? My argument would be that it's the NATO alliance has helped create a, a deal of stability in a part of the world where there's a great deal of instability and violence, a heavy loss of life for a long time. So that it has been sort of on net balance, it has been something that has helped create greater peace. Now, you don't want to provoke the Russians by saying, look, we're going to extend it with all of our will into Ukraine. That's clearly, I, I think, off the table now sensibly in some regards. But where the commitments have been currently made, that has had a history of creating some de- a, 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 a level of peace that we did not know in the century beforehand. 20 years ago next month in the New York Times, George Kennan, the intellectual architect of the containment doctrine, he's in his late 90s, he wrote that the decision to expand NATO would be provocative from Russia's perspective and it would be the most fateful decision the United States would make in the post-Cold War era because it would provoke the very crisis that NATO was meant to contain. The Race for the White House, where we put the 2016 US election in perspective. To listen to other episodes in this series, head to theconversation.com or tune in on Wednesday nights at 7.30 on 107.3. A bit of change of pace here now. We're going to look at opposition to Trump at home. Um, On Saturday, we saw the women's marches, an unprecedented display of opposition against an American president. Uh, There were protests around the world on all seven continents, including Antarctica. Uh, Nate Silver's website, 538, estimated that with over 300 march sites in the US, there was an aggregate crowd of 3.2 million people. Uh, Do you think uh, that it will suddenly become a lot easier for the Democrats to win elections as voters seek to balance against Trump. I mean, I think Trump is on notice. I mean, never has a president entered in my sort of memory where there are so many fronts of potential criticism and they're not just policy fronts. They're his attitude to all sorts of immigrants, to Muslim immigrants, to Mexican-American immigrants, uh, his attitude to women in general. Uh, So he's on notice on many fronts to say, look, this guy has said some things which are deplorable, to use that term, 
and you know he he's got to watch himself and there's going to be uh not just negative reactions in the united states but globally now george w bush entered with a, clearly a cloud over him because of the nature of the Florida victory. He was a very conservative politician in his own way uh, compared to Bill Clinton had different policies. But it's it's a step up that we're dealing with with Trump and, and both the domestic and the global pressure starting from day one of saying we're worried about this guy and what he's going to do in power uh, and his impact on people's lives and attitudes. So I think this this is going to, in some ways, hopefully keep a rein on his activities um, and on his his statements. But it doesn't necessarily translate into electoral victories. We've uh, anyone who's been through last year should just uh, <laughs> keep that well and truly in mind. That just because there's a lot of outrage and protest <laughs> and someone says quite a lot of ridiculous things, uh, doesn't mean they're not going to win an election. I'd agree with all of that. I think there's no question that Trump comes to the White House without the reservoir of personal goodwill that greets most presidents. And I think it's also true that the opposition he faces uh, will be relentless in wanting to see him fail. But the onus is now on Trump to try to defy those critics by producing results, getting the right results. That should be his focus and not being thin-skinned and reacting to every celebrity who lashes out at him, getting down in the trenches, dealing with Congress, both sides of Congress, and trying to pass legislation that is in the national interest. Yeah, and that that, that would be fascinating. I mean, it, I don't think his solutions like his sort of uh, everyone's going to be have health insurance seems very easy or likely, uh, but if he can pull something off that it seems incredibly unlikely and to defy expectations... I think that's his big hope. If he doesn't, uh, this will be a flop because he set those expectations very high and his own supporters, some of those people who were drawn by the populist energy of Trump, will rightly just say, look, this guy was all hot air. You know, that, that puts a lot of pressure on Trump. Finally, I just wanted to ask you, now that we are well and truly in a Trump era, is it likely that we could see him impeached or even tamed by the establishment? Uh, Tom and Brendan, what are your predictions for the next four years under Trump? Well, I suppose in terms of predictions more generally, the thing that really worries me is Trump's approach to any terrorist attack on Americans or on American soil, that there's tendency to kind of overreact Mm. Uh, to place a ban on the entry of a quarter of the world's population, Muslims, into the United States, that's going to lead to an enormous backlash. I don't think many nations will follow suit, so that will isolate the United States. And Trump, under sort of pressure, doesn't tend to be conciliatory. We've never seen a situation where Trump basically said, "Okay, I've made the wrong call here. I'm going to back down and ease out of this a bit, and I'm going to be more diplomatic about it. Forced in a corner, I think he'll... uh, He'll be likely to sort of, you know, just stick with his position and say, look, it's ultimately the right way to deal with a terrorist attack. So the case for creating more hostility to the United States by, you know, lashing out at where ISIS is seen to be based in Iraq and, and Syria, that again could create, you know, civilian deaths, uh, lead to people being recruited to ISIS. So his just his general lack of subtlety, uh, and his kind of tendency to overreact on things to do with terrorism is really the thing that worries me into the future the most. And Tom, what's your call? Well, following on from Brendan's point about foreign policy, I think it's 
true that Trump, like Sanders, found a receptive audience whenever they would question the American penchant for promoting democracy, those military interventions in the Middle East that have been a disaster under both Bush and Obama, and also questioning the uh, US position of subsidising allies' defences. That's resonated with a lot of war-weary people who are tired of the world. But I take Brendan's point too. The thing about Trump is he's an erratic character. He almost shoots from the hip. He's strikingly ignorant of the world, and that they're potentially dangerous characteristics to have in, during a crisis. And his foreign policy might, might start out as, you know, I wouldn't say realist, but, but, but non-interventionist or cautious and prudent. But it would be the easiest thing in the world for a foreign adversary to goad Trump out of any sense of realism. And I think that's the great danger that faces the United States and the world. How does Trump react in a crisis? The Race for the White House, a US election podcast for the non-American. Now that brings us to the close of our 10th and final episode of The Race to the White House. If you'd like to go back and listen to our previous episodes, head to the Conversation website, theconversation.com. You can also search for us in your favourite podcast app. This podcast has been made by 2SER 107.3 FM with the support of the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney and The Conversation. Thanks, as always, to Tom Switzer and Brendan O'Connor. And as we face the next four years of a Trump administration, before we go, I'd like to leave with you some comfort from a dictum that has been attributed to Lincoln. You can fool some of the people all of the time. You can fool all of the people some of the time. But you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. I'm Emma Lancaster and thanks for your company. (laughs) 